0: know this weather we've had the strong storms it reminds me of a story I heard about this dad who told his son I need you to stay in the house because a storm is coming it's going to be a bad storm the winds are going to be terrible there's going to be hell it's going to create a lot of damage if you get caught out in that storm son you could be killed and so the son is looking at his dad with these wide eyes, and he understands, and then before you know it, the dad starts looking around for the son around the house, and he's nowhere to be found, and the storm rolls in, and it's, it's raining, and there's wind, and then there's hail, and the hell is pounding. and. I mean, anybody that's caught out in the storm isn't going to survive, and so the dad goes and he's looking for his son, and he he finds his son, they're kind of out in the ranch area, and he finds him out on a prairie area, and he finds his son, and he knows there's not enough time to, to get the son back to the house safely, so the storm is pounding, and the, and the wind and the hell is pounding, and the dad just lays his son on the ground, and then the dad lays on top of the son because there's no shelter, there's no cover, and then the dad is covering his son's body as the hell is just pounding the dad. And then finally the storm comes and goes, and the son realizes that that the dad had died, but in dying, he had, he had saved his life. And that's a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God says, don't sin. Because sin will result in death, and death will result in eternal separation from me. Don't sin. And we've all sinned, every single one of us. And the wages are the consequences of our sin is death. And yet, God comes from heaven to earth, and He basically covers us when He dies on the cross for our sins. He died. God covered us. And He took the hit of sin and death covering us, so that if we hide safely in the shadow of the cross by trusting in Jesus Christ, then we go free and we live. Jesus died so we could live. This is why we worship. This is how we can go to heaven. This is how we have a relationship with Christ. Jesus died so that we could live. Jesus paid for our sins so we wouldn't have to. And this was what we looked at last week when Jesus said, I am the Passover lamb. In Matthew chapter 26, all of the Old Testament Passover starting in 1460 BC with the very first Passover instituted through Moses and all of the lambs that were slaughtered and all of the goats that were slaughtered year after year after year, Jesus then on the very last true Passover where a lamb was slaughtered, to point to the true Messiah who would be slaughtered to set us free. See, the very first Passover pointed 1,460 years into the future and said, this land that's slaughtered is a picture of the Messiah who will one day be born. And the last true Passover was just a matter of 12 or so hours before Jesus would give up his spirit from the cross at about 3 p.m. on Friday. And in the very last Old Testament Passover that would point toward the Messiah who was to come, Jesus partook of it with his disciples, and then he instituted communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's table or or, or Lord's supper when he said the bread represents my body that's broken and the juice represents my blood. And when you partake of the bread and the juice, remember me hanging on the cross, picture me covering you so that you can live. Picture me dying for your sins so you could live. And then now we no longer partake of the Old Testament Passover because that simply pointed to the true Messiah. But now we partake of communion to reflect upon and remember what Jesus Christ did for us 2,000 years ago. And remember, the Friday before Easter is Good Friday. We'll partake of communion together. The very first communion, as you recall from last week, Jesus said, somebody's about to betray me. Judas knew who it was. All of you are about to desert me. Peter said, I won't. And Jesus said, you'll betray me three times before the rooster crows twice. And that's exactly what he did. Why was Jesus doing that? A couple of reasons. One, so his disciples would know that he was in complete control. And two... To set a precedent at that very first communion service, to take an introspective moment and evaluate our heart and see if there's any rebellion or if there's any spiritual sin or if there's any idolatry, if there's any inconsistency between our doctrine and our life, and repent. So when we go into the communion service the Friday before Easter, we, um, we have our hearts right with God. That means between now and communion time, uh, get on the phone and tell somebody you're sorry. Between now and communion time, get on the phone and tell somebody I forgive you. Between now and communion time, uh, get those pet sins out of your life. Between now and communion time, confess maybe some addiction that you have with somebody so they can pray over you and you can be set free. And as we enter into communion Communion together as a church family, we'll do so with a clean heart, and we'll just bask in and savor what Jesus Christ has done for us. It's a very artistic thing, communion. It touches all five senses. The arts touch the senses baptism is very it's very artistic we are enveloped in the water and it's we can feel it taste it smell it and it's very refreshing and communion is very artistic we can touch it we can smell it we can feel it we can taste it we savor it as we close our eyes and we picture jesus as the father covered the son absorbing the hell and giving up his life to save his son's life so jesus hung on the cross and he took the penalty of sin which was death And he paid for our sins. And that's how much he loves us. So as we continue in the final 24 hours of the life of Christ, we'll now leave that communion table. They sing a hymn, and then they went down into the Mount of Olives, and at the edge of the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. I've always been fascinated with this place, and I'm going to get to see it firsthand in June. I'm really excited about that. Um, Somebody just from Houston just wanted to be a blessing to me, so they're sending me to Israel in this tour where we'll be hiking nine miles a day and I'm not ready (laughs) not even close to it in shape wise but I'm looking forward so forward to going into the garden of Gethsemane the mount of olives there's trees there that today that were there 2,000 years ago maybe I'll pray under a tree that Jesus prayed under so Jesus left the upper room with the disciples and they went down into the mount of olives Jesus was very accustomed to going there and praying But before we go any further, as we continue to to follow the chronology and the clock of the final 24 hours of the life of Christ, before we gave up his spirit at 3 p.m. on Friday, as we partake of communion together on Good Friday at 7 p.m., before we go any further, let's just pray that God blesses our time together tonight. And if some of you need to ask Jesus into your heart to be your Lord and Savior, do that right now as we pray. Jesus, thank you for dying for our sins on the cross. Thank you for absorbing all the payment and penalty of our sin so that we could go free. Thank you for being slaughtered so we could be set free. And now, Lord, if there's anybody here who doesn't have a relationship with you, we just pause and give them a moment. And right now, tell Jesus that you're sorry for sinning, but thank Jesus for dying on the cross for you. And say, Jesus, I trust that you paid for my sins. I believe that my salvation depends upon your death on the cross and resurrection. You came back to life three days later. Jesus, I trust in you to be my Lord and Savior. Come into my heart and make me a new person. I'll start following you but by the power of your Holy Spirit. And now, Lord, I pray that you would bless our time together this evening as a church family. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bibles, open it to Matthew 26. We'll continue. in the chronology of the last 24 hours of the life of christ matthew chapter 26 it's really such a it's such a deep such a practical chapter as we follow judas's betrayal peter's denial the authorities' unjust trial and as we see what the root of of all of their spiritual rebellion was they all had a tipping point. There was a tipping point. There was some boiling that was going on inside the heart of Judas. There was some boiling. The three years he was following Christ, there was some increasing tension in the heart of Judas that led to a tipping point which triggered his betrayal of Jesus. There was some boiling tension in the heart the heart. And the spirituality of Peter for the three years that he was following Christ until his tipping point, and then there was a trigger which led to Peter's denial. And there's some boiling uh, inside the faith and the heart of the authorities until their tipping point and the trigger that led to their unjust trial to sentence Jesus to crucifixion. Judas, in my opinion, as we as we break down the text, Judas's betrayal was the result of a tipping point. The trigger was that Judas finally concluded that Jesus's ways were just too unimportant. There's been a lot of speculation as to why Judas did what he did. The Bible doesn't necessarily spell it out, so it is just that speculation. But we've got a lot of text that leads us to some pretty good, uh, some, some pretty good guesses. And we'll look at those. Peter's denial of Christ was the result of the trigger that I believe resulted from Peter concluding, Jesus, your ways are too undesirable— They're very similar, even probably the same sin, uh, but they were expressed in different ways. Judas betrayed because he thought Christ's path was too unimportant. Peter denied because he thought Christ's path was too undesirable. And the authorities uh, created this unjust trial in the middle of the night and unjustly sentenced Christ to be executed because they thought that this guy who was claiming to be the Messiah was just too unimpressive. And it's just so sad because the creator of all things, the one who loved them uh, with an everlasting eternal love, the one who was willingly uh, covering their souls and taking the punishment of sin and death so they could go free was in their midst and everything was under his control. And this was why he came. But let's just push pause for a moment on Matthew chapter 26. And I want to go back to that in a second because I think that something in Jeremiah, and you don't have to flip there, but I just want to read this to you. I think there's something in Jeremiah that's so telling as we we kind of catch an essence, an idea of something from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, and then we'll go back to the night of Christ's unjust trials and his betrayal and his denial. But I just want to read just a couple of statements from the book of Jeremiah. And then we're actually going to close out with a few statements from the book of Jeremiah. But let me just preface all this by saying this. If any of us read the Bible and walk away from it with the impression that it is not, first and foremost, a love story, then we've missed it entirely. We have missed it more drastically than if we go see Beauty and the Beast and walk away thinking it was a horror film instead of a love story. We've missed it more drastically than if you went and saw a a Freddy Krueger movie and walked away thinking it was a love story instead of a horror film. If we read the Bible, uh, this document in which God reveals his heart and his plan and his story toward us, and if we walk away from it thinking it is not first and foremost a love story, it's not about a bunch of rules and regulation that God imposes upon us, it's a love story. It is not about what God demands of us, it's about how God desires us and if we walk away thinking it's something other than a love story we've missed it completely it is not just a love story it's the greatest love story of all time it's the greatest love story of all eternity and it's not a simple love story it is a passionate vulnerable uh relentless shocking love story In which God's heart is filled with joy, it's filled with longing, it's filled with desire, it's filled with jealousy, it's filled with singing over us. It is a passionate love story. But in Jeremiah, we see this this heart of God. Look at his people. And I must say that just in my time with the Lord, when I was reading through Jeremiah, for a moment... What I read reminded me of many conversations I've had over the years of couples who were in counseling, and it was usually because one of the spouses allowed their heart to become distracted and wayward, and the other heart was broken. And so the the unfaithful heart would say something like this, I just don't love them anymore. In fact, I don't know that I ever love them. In fact, I'm in love with somebody else now. And then the faithful heart would say something like this to the unfaithful heart. What have I done wrong? How have I felled you? I, I, I don't understand. What do you see in that person that, 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 that I didn't offer you? And that is such a sad, oh, it's such a heavy and such a sad conversation to be part of. But this is what God said. The faithful heart of God who looked at the faithless heart of his people, Judah, and he said in the book of Jeremiah, what fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me and they followed worthless idols? And he goes on to say, did I not bless them? Did I not provide for them? Did I not deliver them? Did did I not take care of all of their needs? Was I not a good God? What fault? That could they possibly have found in me to turn away from me to have lost their love in me and to have just started carving out their own idols and worshiping idols that they created what fault could they possibly have found in me now back in matthew chapter 26 judas betrayed because in his heart he found fault with christ Peter denied because in his heart he found fault with Christ. And the religious authorities created this unjust trial and sentenced him to die because in their heart they found fault with Christ. Because they, like we, came to a crisis of belief. And this is what happens when we're at a crisis of belief our will and our wishes. And our perception of what God should be or how God should have acted is inconsistent with how God is acting. And so we have this discrepancy and we have this crisis of belief and the tension grows and we conclude like Judas and like Peter and like the authorities, Lord, if you don't shape up and start acting like the God that I think you should act like, then I'm going to take matters into my own hands and I'll assume your responsibilities when it comes to my life. That's some pretty lofty accusations, isn't it? Now, we might not say those words verbatim, but when the tension grows in our heart, because we're in a crisis of belief, because our wishes are inconsistent with God's will, and when we look at this discrepancy, and like playing tug-of-war, if we dig our heels in, and if we say, God, you better shape up and start acting like the God that I expect you to act like, or I'm going to assume your role as leader of my own life, or we learn to surrender— and we say, not my will, but your will be done because I trust you. And that's really our choice when we have a crisis of belief, to dig in our hills and dethrone God from our own heart, or we surrender. So Judas, Peter, and the authorities teach us how to dig in our hills when we're in these crisis of beliefs. But we'll go back to our Lord and Savior Jesus a few moments earlier in Gethsemane and learn from him how to surrender in a moment. of uh, of despair and crisis of belief so matthew chapter 26 let's look at the fault that judas and peter and the authorities found in christ and i think this is so practical because we do it in our heart of hearts we say if i were god i would have planned things differently if i were god then my life would have turned out differently or my life would be on a different course if i were god I would issue different commands. If I were God, I would dole out different blessings. If I were God, I would treat my enemies a little bit worse. If I were God, I wouldn't, I wouldn't allow people to walk through these fiery trials. If I were God, on and on and on it goes. And in essence, this tension grows. And instead of having this affection and this trust towards Christ... We begin having this resentment towards God, and though we may not say it with our words, our heart is declaring, God, shape up, or let me take over. That's our option, or our option is to surrender. So let's start with Judas, Matthew chapter 26. So they leave the upper room, and they go down into the Garden of Gethsemane. And there Jesus prays, and he's praying with drops of blood, and we'll circle back to that And let's pick up in verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with him. Watch the signal. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Now, some people think there were uh, 50 to 100 palace guards. Some commentators even think there were as many as 500 to 600. But we know this much they were armed, they had swords, they had clubs. They knew Jesus had supernatural authority and power. They knew that there were 12 zealots, or now 11 zealots, that are following him. And they had swords, they had clubs, they had torches. And they said, Judas said, the one that I kiss is the man, arrest him, going at once to Jesus. Judas, Judas is his follower. Judas is one of his closest followers. In fact, let's look at the communion table. How many of you have seen, I think it's Leonardo da Vinci's painting of, um, maybe it's Michelangelo. I think it's da Vinci's painting of the Lord's Supper all Jesus in the middle of the table, and they're all on one side? Isn't that kind of funny? It's not the way it was. They weren't on all one long table on just one side of the table. Nobody would eat like that. And on top of that, they weren't sitting on chairs with their feet underneath the table. The communion table that they were eating at traditionally would have been uh, shaped like a horseshoe. And the head of the table, interestingly, wouldn't have been in the very center. The head of the table would have been the second to the end. Now, the person at his position of honor would have been the right of Jesus. Now, he was on the very end. Now, they didn't sit underneath the table on chairs. And that day in that custom, the tables were about oh so high. And they didn't have chairs, but they kind of sat on their side, which is why it's so important that they washed their feet before dinner. They sort of sat on their side with their feet behind them, and they reclined, as was the custom, on their left elbow. So we read that John, the disciple Jesus loved, it was John. It's a very healthy identity that John had, by the way. John wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and he wrote the book of Revelation. And when he refers to himself in the Gospel of John, he refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. And I think that's an awesome self-esteem. I think that's an awesome identity, to learn to refer to ourselves as the Christian that Jesus loves. Of course, Jesus loves all the disciples, but John owned that identity. The Bible says that the disciple whom Jesus loved leaned against Jesus' chest. What does that mean? Well, that means that John would have had to have been at the position of Jesus' right. The seat of honor next to the uh, most prominent person at the table of the 13, which was Jesus. John was at Jesus' right, leaning back against Jesus. Jesus said, one of you will betray me. Somebody said, who, Lord? And Jesus said, the one who dips his bread with mine. Jesus just prophesied this. The one who dips... His, hand, his bread and in the, in, in the bowl with me is the betrayer, and then he dipped it in, and then Judas dipped his bread in with Jesus. What does that tell us? That tells us Jesus was to the left of Jesus. If John was reclining, the one on the right, then the second most prominent position next to the most important position was Jesus, then there was John the beloved, and then that means that Judas had the second most prominent position besides John next to Jesus, and that was to his left. What does that tell us? That tells us that when we see these paintings of the Lord's Supper, and you can always pick Judas out, can't you? He's the one that looks like the criminal. He's, he's the one that just looks evil, and he's just, he's just grimacing, and he's holding a money bag, and he's clenching, and he looks just greedy. And you're like, okay, yeah, that's Judas. It wasn't like that. When Jesus said, One of you is about to betray me, they didn't go, Oh, that's Judas. Oh, that's Judas. No. They're like, Is it I? Is it I? And even when Jesus told Judas, Go do what you must do and do it quickly, and Judas got up and went from there, even then, they didn't assume that Judas was on his way to betray Jesus. They thought that he was on some assignment that Jesus just gave him to give food to the poor or something of that nature. Judas was over the money, he was over the finances. He was uh, next to John at the most prominent position at Jesus' table. Nobody assumed that he was the betrayer. And what does this tell us? This tells us that, but by the grace of God, there goes I. None of us can point our finger at anybody who sinned and say that they're the worst person in the world because given the right set of circumstances or given the worst set of circumstances that we are ourselves in, any of us have the capacity to do the exact same thing, even betray Jesus. But by the grace of God, there goes I. Because all of our spirits, if we're Christians, we have a new nature, and our new nature, our spirits are still encaged until we leave this life and we're in heaven. Our spirits are still encaged by flesh that's totally depraved. And given the right set of circumstances, any of us, could be driven to betray Jesus but what did push Judas to betray Jesus now again it's speculation but if we go earlier in the week what we see is this lady with alabaster ointment and it was expensive it was a treasure and the jar was expensive Uh, we touched on it a week ago and she burst the the uh, the jar and that was a lot of money and she poured every drop of that ointment on head. It was a fragrance to Jesus. It was sweet worship to Jesus. Because there's only one kind of worship in which is just a sweet aroma to Jesus. And that's passionate. That's fully devoted. That's fully grateful. That's scandalous worship. That's our whole heart. And so she poured everything she had on Jesus' head. And the disciples were indignant because that was a lot of money that was just poured down the drain. And then Judas spoke up, indignant. And Judas said, that could have been sold and the money could have been given to the poor. And Jesus, knowing that Judas really didn't care about the poor, said, you'll have the poor with me always. You'll have the poor with you always, but me, you'll only have a little bit longer. And then the Bible tells us in pretty much the very next verse that Jesus at that point began conspiring with the authorities about how he might... Betray Jesus and hand him over to the authorities. And so we see that for three years, there was this increasing tension where Judas was following Jesus, but something within him was sort of prideful and arrogant, where he was always thinking, Jesus, you did it again. You almost did it right, but just not quite. Jesus, you just should have shaped up a little bit. Jesus, you should, you should have just done this a little bit better. If you just would have done it like I told you to do it, if you would do it like I would start telling you to do it, he was following, but it was reluctantly, and he was always condescending and looking down toward Jesus, and that tension continued to build, and it continued to boil and finally he said some people believe that the reason that judas betrayed jesus was that he was trying to force him to act he was trying to force him to a revolt some think he was just so greedy it was for the money but perhaps it was because he just got so fed up of jesus's impracticality and that his ways were just below judas's ways and then he just simply betrayed him or a combination of probably all of the above so Judas." walks up to Jesus, and to the surprise of all of the other 11 disciples, Judas kisses Jesus to signal to all of the guards, this is Jesus, arrest him, and this is how Jesus responds. Friend, do what you came for. What a statement. That's how Jesus responded to Judas's kiss. Friend, do what you came for. Why do you, why do you show affection to me with your mouth and your heart is far from me? Just do what you came for. If you want to betray me, betray me. But don't put on this pretense. Don't try to make this show like you love me because your heart is far from me. Now let me just ask, just very practically, if you pray and your words are far from your prayers, and if you just sort of say some words during worship and your heart's far from the worship, and maybe you have ministerial responsibilities, but your heart's kind of far from that, that's external stuff, but what is the root of that? Could it be like Judas, like Judas, there's been some increasing tension in your heart because of a discrepancy between your will and God's will, and you won't give in? And perhaps you've dethroned God from being God in your heart because you won't trust Him, and so you pray and you worship, but your heart is far removed. And so I just want to encourage you, if that's you tonight, then Repent. And let's follow the example of Jesus in a moment and surrender. Now, it's not going to be long from this moment that... Judas will take the money and he'll tell the authorities, "I don't want this any longer. This is blood money." And they're going to say, "What's that to us?" And Judas is going to throw it. And he's going to go hang himself, and his body's going to start swelling and decomposing. And he's going to be over a, his body's over a cliff, and the branch is going to break, and his body's going to fall. And from the very middle, his body's going to break in half, and his intestines are going to spill out all over the ground. And then the authorities are going to take that money and say, that we can't use this for anything, so they're going to buy a field and use it as a cemetery for people who are unknown? And Jesus would say of Judas that it's better he call him the son of perdition if he were never born. And for the past 2,000 years, Judas has continued to be separated from God. But it's interesting that his sin wasn't a whole lot different than Peter's sin. And yet Peter ended up repenting and being restored, and God used him and ended up being a pillar in the church. And that tells us that we can repent, that no heart is so Hardened that it can't be thawed out by the Holy Spirit when we repent and we relinquish control of our lives to Christ and we say there's been a discrepancy and I've dug in my heels and I've been resentful for you, God, because my wishes are inconsistent with your will. But I'm gonna I'm gonna crucify my wishes. And I trust you. I don't understand, but I trust you, God, and I love you, and I trust you. And so, Judas. The trigger point from him was perhaps Christ's ways are just too unimportant. And the trigger point for Peter was that Christ's ways are just too undesirable. So let's continue in our text. Verse 50, Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. Verse 51, with that, one of Jesus' companions, we know from other gospels, this is the apostle Peter. One of Jesus' companions reached for his sword. He drew it out and struck the servants of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And then Jesus says, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? It has to happen like this to fulfill scripture. Peter said this. Peter did this. We oftentimes give Peter a hard time, don't we? Because when we think about Peter at the dinner table with Jesus saying, Oh no, Lord, everybody else is going to abandon you, but not me. And Peter's exact words to Jesus were, I will fight for you, I will go to prison for you, and I will die for you. And then that's when Jesus told Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the night is over, and you'll be reminded of this when the rooster crows. Peter said, never, Lord. And we give Peter a hard time about that. But what we just read tells us Peter meant every single word of it. Armed soldiers came to arrest Jesus. There's at least 100 of them. There's 12 disciples, now 11 plus Jesus. These are trained soldiers. Peter's a fisherman. Matthew's a tax collector. And Peter draws his sword, and he cuts off the high priest's assistant's ear. Peter is not a trained marksman. He's not a trained swordsman. He couldn't swing a sword with precision. He wasn't going for the guy's ear. He was going for the middle of his skull, or he was going for his neck. He wasn't going for his ear. Peter was playing for keeps. He was ready to take this guy's life. He was ready to enter into a bloodbath, knowing that it would probably cost him. And in fact, it would have had if Christ didn't intervene with supernatural power, when Peter started swinging his sword, he knew this was about to become a bloodbath and it was going to cost him his life. And he was OK with that. Well then why did he deny? They scattered. Jesus said to those who came after him, "You've come after me, not them. Let them go." They scattered. Jesus spared them. So why was it? If Jesus, if Peter was that intent on standing up with Jesus and fighting for Jesus and dying for Jesus, if he was that intent, as he obviously displayed that he was, then why would he deny him just a few moments later? Now we read it in just one a swoop of verses that might just take us a few minutes where, where they say, Hey, weren't you reckon? Weren't you with him? A girl says, Weren't you with him? And Peter says, No, you have me mixed up with somebody else. And somebody says, No, you, 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 you were with him. And Peter said, I said I wasn't. And then later they say, now there's a group. No, your accent gives you away. You're from Galilee. We know you were with Jesus from Nazareth. And now with cursing, I said I don't know the man. What happened? I mean, how did Peter go from swinging his sword to cut a guy's neck off or crash his skull to denying that he even knew him? I'll tell you what the difference was. It was the trigger. It was the boiling point for Peter. It was the trigger. It's when Jesus did this, and they shackled his hands, and they shackled his feet, and they probably put a collar around his neck, and they led him away and Jesus looked powerless and Peter knew that Jesus was probably being led away to a Roman cross and that's exactly earlier in Jesus' ministry what Peter said that he didn't sign up for when Jesus was prophesying of the cross Peter rebuked Jesus and said lord never and Peter looked at or Jesus looked at Peter and said get thee behind me satan you have the Things of the devil in mind and this world in mind, but not my father. I'm going to the cross. The one thing that Peter said, I don't want any part of. Peter signed up to follow Jesus, to overthrow Rome, not to follow some leader who was going to be crucified by Rome. And so this was Peter's boiling point. This was his trigger. Jesus' ways were just too undesirable. And that's when the tension built in Peter's heart and he denied what does it look like practically to deny Christ for us I think a very telling statement is that a couple of times you can read about it in this Matthew chapter 26 it says that Peter he continued to follow Jesus but at a distance he continued to follow but at a distance so Can you relate with Judas? Do your prayers, do your words uh, contradict your heart? Do your words and your prayers and your worship talk a lot about loving Jesus and being devoted to Jesus and being grateful to Jesus? But your heart's really far from it. Or can you relate with Peter? Are you following Jesus but kind of at a distance? Because really there's some tension in your relationship with Jesus because his ways are just too undesirable. Well, and then the authorities, they begin, it's a, it's, a, it's a mock trial, it's a kangaroo trial, it's an unjust trial, it's in the middle of the night, it's, it's so that a mob doesn't know what's going on, and nobody comes to Jesus' rescue, and they don't entice a riot, and so it's this, it's this immediate, overnight trial, and they start bringing witness after witness, saying all kinds of lies against Jesus, but they still don't have anything to accuse him of or condemn him with because all of the witnesses seem to be contradicting testimonies but this is why jesus came to be the passover lamb so he almost helps them to find fault in him and sentence him in verse 63 jesus remains silent as the witnesses rise up and isn't that isn't that what sort of boils the tension when we're not living surrendered lives, when we're not living crucified lives, when lives where we're not trusting in Christ? Doesn't that just sort of cause the tension to boil when God remains silent? God, I wish this, and you seem to be willing that, and there's a contradiction, and I need you to act, and I need you to do this, I need you to say this, and God remains silent. And can't that cause some tension to, to, to increase in our heart? And if we, don't, if we don't recognize that tension, and if we don't cast it down, and if we don't repent of it, and if we don't learn to surrender, then our hearts will grow hardened like Judas's, and, and, and our words will, will contradict our heart, or our, our, our hearts will grow hardened like Peter, and we'll follow, but at a distance, and we'll be passive, and there won't be passion involved. But sometimes Jesus remains silent because silence is what's best for us. Silence is what most glorifies him. Silence is what demands our trust in him. We've been going through the five love languages in this marriage group. There's gifts and affirmation and um, all these great love languages. And you want to know what God's number one love language is? He loves quality time. He loves gifts. Um, He loves words of affirmation and he gives them. But you want to know what God's number one love language is? trust. We trust him. The Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God and sometimes his silence is designed to deepen our trust which will deepen his glory in our life and it will ultimately deepen our joy. And so they're bringing all these false witnesses and these lies are contradicting and Jesus is remaining silent and now Jesus almost just says to give them something to condemn him with. The high priest said, I charge you, under oath, by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And finally, Peter, Jesus is no longer silent, and he says in verse 64, you have said so, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven, and with that... The high priest tore his clothes and said, he's spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, have you heard his blasphemy? What do you think? And they all scream, he's worthy of death. And then, watch this, they spit in his face. They strike him with their fists. They slap him and they say, prophesy to us, Messiah. Who hits you? Jesus allowed his own words to sentence him and and to... evoke this violent response against him because this is why he came to be slaughtered so we could be set free he came to as the dad covered the son and his body took the hell from the storm to save his son's life this is why jesus came to cover us so that he could take the hit of the law of sin and death and he could pay for our sins and give up his life so that we could go free I believe that Judas' betrayal was was evoked because he thought Jesus' ways were too unimportant. Peter's denial was evoked because he thought Jesus' ways were too undesirable. And the authorities' unjust trial was evoked because they thought this guy claiming to be the Messiah was just too unimpressive. And this is how Jesus came. No stately form that we should desire him. Like King Saul, the first king of Israel, he was literally head and shoulders above everybody else. Like if King Saul, the first king of Israel, was standing beside me, he would be so tall. But not only that, he would be handsome, and he was intelligent, and he was articulate. And you would look at him, and you would go, well, he should be ahead of a state. That is a stately, statesman kind of guy. But not so with Jesus. He willingly came as the form of a humble servant. ...because He came to be slaughtered... ...so we could be set free. So, what's I think so humbling about all of this for us... ...is that Jesus willingly endured this betrayal... ...and He willingly endured this denial... ...and He willingly endured this false trial. And He did it because He came to be slaughtered... ...because He wanted to set free... All of those who are mocking him and spitting on him and hitting him and saying, prophesy, who hit you? This is why he came. Look at this in verse 54 of Matthew chapter 26. Nothing, and it's so critical that we understand this, nothing was happening outside of his will. Nothing was happening outside of his control. In fact, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve first sinned, God didn't then just come down to Eden and say, okay, I've got a plan to get everybody out of this. No, even before he created the universe, even before he founded the world, he knew Christ would be crucified on the cross to set us free. Before the foundation of the world, Christ was slain. This is why he came. And watch this. In chapter 26, in verse 54, Jesus said... How would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Did you hear that? How would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Unless I allow myself to be slaughtered. And in verse 56, he says again, But all that has taken place that the writing of the prophets might be fulfilled. All of this has taken place so that the writing of the prophets might be fulfilled. Everything is completely in his control. And nobody forced Jesus to the cross. He willingly went to be the lamb who was slaughtered so that we could all be set free to fulfill all of prophecy. And I, I am convinced to the core of my being that Jesus is indeed the creator of all things and that he paid for my sin and that he conquered death, that he was born in a manger 2,000 years ago and split time in half, B.C.A.D. And he holds all things together by the power of his word. Jesus has proven to me time and time and time again that he's faithful, that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. One day this building will no longer be here on 1701 Hemp Hill. It'll be gone, but guess who remains? Christ remains. His word remains. Clinton was president for eight years. He's come and gone. Bush was president for eight years. He came and gone. Uh, Obama was president eight years. He came and now he's gone and uh, trump is now in office he's going to be gone and leaders come and go buildings come and go nations come and go this world will come and go but one thing remains and that's christ and his word he is faithful anything that christ has ever promised to me christ is fulfilled in his time and in his way usually it's longer than i anticipated but it's always more glorious than i ever would dare ask or imagine he is faithful Jesus is more real to me than this pew. Jesus is more real to me than Markley. Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Jesus is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. I know it to be true because of a relationship that I've had with him that wasn't about me fulfilling rules and regulations. It wasn't about me holding on to his arm. It was about him holding on to me. And I've let go from time to time, and I've failed him from time to time, but he's remained faithful, and he's never failed me. And he went to the cross, but he wasn't forced. Love led him to the cross, and love Held him on the cross. And at any time, he could have called angels to fight for him and deliver him, but he didn't because he chose to stay on the cross to pay for our sins. So that, as he said, in these two places right here, so that all scripture could be fulfilled and that all the prophets could be fulfilled. We won't go into it, but you can go all the way back to many places in the Old Testament. You go to Isaiah chapter 53. In fact, if you're taking notes, jot that down Isaiah chapter 53. You guys ought to know. Isaiah 53, that ought to be very familiar with you. And I I encourage you to read Isaiah 53. Interestingly, Isaiah chapter 53 was written 700 years before the birth of Christ, 700 B.C. And it talks about how Jesus is the Passover lamb and how he was slaughtered for our iniquities. And it pleased the father to crush the son. It's a beautiful verse about how Jesus was crucified for our sins, in 700 BC. And interestingly, sometimes people think, "Oh yeah, well, the New Testament writers just doctored what they were going to doctor up, or, or, or Isaiah 53 was doctored, and it was all, you know just sort of kind of fit together. No, because there was actually in 100 BC, in 100 BC, um, there was some people who made a copy of Isaiah chapter 53, and they hid it in a cave. And then it wasn't discovered until I think about 1947 when this kid in Israel was chasing some sheep and he threw a rock and he heard something break and so he went down to the cave and he investigated and he found what's known today as it's one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of all time, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it was an exact copy of Isaiah 53. So we know what was written in our Bibles and Isaiah 53 was exactly what God intended to write. And the the, the New Testament writers and Isaiah chapter 53, they corroborate exactly so that we know that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And another chapter that you really need to be familiar with is Psalm chapter 22, Psalm chapter 22. And what's so remarkable about that is it talks about a crucifixion 700 years before the Romans ever invented crucifixion, execution through crucifixion. In 1000 BC, we read in Psalm 22, it begins like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What did Jesus say from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was he quoting scripture? More than that. He was fulfilling scripture. In Psalm 22, which was written again in 1000 BC, goes on to unpack everything that was going on in the heart and mind of Jesus while he was hanging on the cross. It's... Interesting because we read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John kind of from the third person looking at Jesus, but then we go back in Scripture, and we can read Psalm 22, written 1,000 BC, and we know what was going on in the heart and mind of Christ as he was looking out from Golgotha, hanging on the cross. This is what he's thinking. "My hands and feet are pierced," it says. "All my bones are out of joint. I can count all my bones." That's interesting because uh, Jesus was crucified on the Passover, that was a Friday, the next day's a Sabbath. It was unlawful to have a dead body, according to the Jews, it was unlawful to have a dead body hanging on a cross on the Sabbath, so the Jewish leadership went to the Romans, and they said, you've got to get these bodies down. They said, well, they're not dead yet. Well, the reason they weren't dead is because the reason that people died from crucifixion was, wasn't from the loss of blood, and it, and it wasn't from the pain, although it was in incredibly excruciating it was it was uniquely designed to be a a death of torture the 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 way that the crucifixion victims died was through suffocation because your hands are pierced on the cross and your feet are pierced and so they would push themselves up on their legs to get a breath (gasps) and then they would go back down where they couldn't breathe and they would push themselves up. But every time they would push themselves up, the spikes that were driven through their nerves and their legs and their muscles, they would just begin to shake and it was just on fire and it was the most excruciating pain and they couldn't handle it anymore. So they would catch a quick breath and then they would let go and they would push up and the pain was so intense, but they'd catch a quick breath. And then finally, they wouldn't have the, the, the resolve or the strength to push up any longer. They would die of crucifixion, I'm sorry, of suffocation. And so, Sabbath was approaching, so the Roman soldiers had a rod, and they went to the guy on the right of Jesus with the rod, and like just swinging like a baseball bat, they swung at the guy's knees, and they broke his legs, so his legs collapsed, and he could no longer hold himself up and breathe, and he suffocated more quickly. And then they went to the other uh, guy on the other side of Jesus, they swung, They bashed his legs, and then he could no longer hold himself up, and he suffocated more quickly. And then they came to Jesus, and they were about to swing, and they didn't because he had already given up the spirit. And that was to fulfill prophecy. I can count all my bones, and none of my bones shall be broken. And then they stabbed Jesus with a spear to make sure that he was indeed dead, and blood and water sprayed out. The blood, it was a symbol of the the blood of Christ that washes us clean and makes us the church and the spirit of Christ that fills our heart was represented by the water. I remember years ago, John Stella shared with me that that's a medical condition of a ruptured heart that causes the blood in your system to circulate with the water in your system to intermingle. And so blood and water flowed. And interestingly, just hours before when Jesus was praying in Gethsemane, he said, oh, my heart is sorrowful even unto the point of death. Our Lord and Savior died of a ruptured heart because the weight of the sins of the entire world were resting upon him. And he who knew no sin literally became sin. And when he became our sin, he died. And when he died, our sin and our death died so that we could become the very righteousness of God. And in Psalm 22, it talks about my heart melts away within me like wax. They divide my garments and cast lots for my clothing. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. I'm surrounded by dogs. All who encircle me are are, are like bulls and they're attacking. My bones are out of joint. I can count on my bones. My hands and feet are pierced. A thousand B.C. There's many, many places in Scripture that point to the crucifixion of Christ. And this is why Jesus went to the cross. It wasn't against his will. Nobody forced him to go. He wasn't a poor victim. He went willingly as the Lamb of God who was slaughtered so that we could be set free. So that the law of sin and death was paid for and satisfied. God is so holy that sin will be Paid for, Or do we think that God is going to let genocide go unchecked? Do we think that God is going to let uh, rape go unchecked? Do we think that God is going to let sexual abuse and molestation go unchecked? Do we think that God will let Holocaust go unchecked and lust and adultery and hate and greed go unchecked? No, God is holy and sin has a penalty and that penalty is death but God attached the penalty of sin as death knowing good and well that he was the one who was going to pay for it on our behalf. God is so holy sin must be paid for and that is death but God is so loving without thinking twice he said I'll go and I'll pay for you so that you can go free. And how can how can we not trust this God? At At the moment that Judas was trusting him the least, at the moment that Peter was trusting him the least, at the moment that the crowd was making the most fun of him, it was the greatest, the greatest display of his love for us, and Peter, who abhorred Rome and abhorred the most undesirable thought of a roman cross and you got to understand that these guys grew up seeing jews crucified by romans over and over and over and they were sick of roman tyranny he came to love the cross and he gladly laid down his sword and he gladly picked up his cross and followed when he saw his risen savior and realized that his sins were forgiven to the extent that it was time for Peter to give up his life for the name of Jesus Christ, he didn't betray, he didn't deny, he didn't run. He said, I just have one request. Crucify me upside down because I'm not fit to be crucified like my Lord. Isn't that something? You know, if there's a discrepancy in your heart between your will And God's will. Know this. God is more for you than you are for yourself. God wants you to be more deeply blessed than you've ever fathomed being blessed. God is more for you than you are for yourself. Stop fighting him in your heart. Just trust him. Just speak his love language and trust him. repent of the tension in your heart and say i i turn from this i surrender i don't understand you but i'm going to trust you and i trust you and you say lord not my will but your will be done when we pray through that when we when we repent of that tension between our wishes and god's will When we pray through that tension, and even like Jesus, with tears in our eyes, we pray so intensely, perhaps we even sweat drops of blood, but we pray until we pray with resolve, not my will, but your will be done, we'll be overwhelmed with this sense of peace in our life, and this sense of authority. Back in Gethsemane, Jesus was sweating drops of blood, the soldiers come, and they say, are you... Jesus, and he says i am i am that powerful name that god spoke to moses i am and he said i am with such control and such authority that the soldiers fell back as if dead no nobody drug jesus off to do anything against his will he was following the father And what's the difference in Jesus between this figure that the strength leaves his legs and his heart is sorrowful even unto the point of death? He almost didn't make it out of Gethsemane, the garden of Gethsemane. And he's on his face and he's sweating drops of blood. And then the soldiers come and say, are you Jesus? And he says, I am. With such calm and with such authority that the soldiers fell back as if dead. What's the difference? Well, it's right in the middle when Jesus says not my will but your will be done because in Gethsemane Jesus prayed let this cup pass from me Father if there's another way what was the cup? was Jesus afraid of the crucifixion? no obviously he wasn't looking forward to it who would? in fact when You sweat drops of blood, capillaries under your pores burst and blood seeps through your pores and that leaves your skin so sensitive it's almost like an intense sunburn and that was the condition of Christ's skin when they were ripping the beard off of his face and putting the spikes in his head and slapping him and mocking him and whipping him. But that's not what he was afraid of or not afraid of, that's not what he was dreading so much. We're talking about a man who went 33 years without sinning once. That is strength. He knew how to deny his flesh. He went 40 days without eating. He knew how to deny his flesh. Now, when Jesus said, let this cup pass from me, he was talking about becoming sin. He who knew no sin, what would you most hate to touch? A spider? A snake? That's me. Vomit? Vomit? What would you most hate to touch? Mix it all together, put it in a blender. And not only drink it, become it. Jesus knew no sin. He didn't want to touch sin. He wanted nothing to do with sin. He loves sinners, but he wanted nothing to do with sin. And he who knew no sin was about to become sin so that he could die on the cross for our sins so that we could be set free this is a god whose ways are obviously so much higher than ours we can't pretend to ever understand him but this is a god that we can trust this is a god whose wisdom we can trust whose plan whose selflessness whose humility whose power we can trust So, when there's a discrepancy between our wishes and God's will, stop digging in your heels. Repent of that tension. And, like Jesus in Gethsemane, say, Oh God, not my will, your will be done. I trust you, Lord. So, would you stand with me, please? So if you would just bow your heads, I wonder how many of you say, yeah, I, I, I've got a tension in my heart. I've got some wishes, and, and God isn't acting or behaving as quickly or, or in a manner that I perhaps think he should. And, and so there's some increasing tension in my heart, and, and I would just like to repent of that. And I would like for that to be cast out. And I want, I want peace. I want to trust this God who gave his life for me. I would just like to pray for you. If that's you, just raise your hand. Okay, so Father, you see our hands. Lord, you saw these hands, and Lord, you, you, you know this tension, and Lord, we repent of this. And like Jesus in Gethsemane, we say, oh God, not my will, but your will be done. Your will be done. We trust you, God. You who would send your own son to the cross on our behalf, we trust you. Lord Jesus, we trust you. You who would willingly become, of all things, sin, so that we might become your righteousness. You are so selfless, so humble, so good, so wise. We trust you, God. We trust you. So when there's a discrepancy between our wishes and your will, Lord, we will crucify our wishes. And we'll say, not our will, your will be done. And we'll trust you, God. Because you're too wise to be mistaken. And you're too good to be unkind. And you're too powerful to be out of control. And so we have no room left but to trust you. We trust you, God. So in our response, you're welcome just to come kneel and like Jesus pray, not my will, your will be done. Or you're welcome to respond to the cross as we've reflected a lot on what Jesus has done for us. Just respond with worship. But let's just take a moment of response.